Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have that we, we will never take for granted, I pray, uh, the privilege we have to assemble together for the sole purpose of studying your word, getting to know you better, Lord, through your word. Thank you for your servant Daniel and the fine example that he sets to us on how to live a godly, separated, committed, purpose life in a culture of corruption. For surely that is the day in which we are also living, and truly it is the day in which all Christians have lived because this world is corrupt, it is sin-cursed, and currently ruled by the prince of this earth, Satan. But thank you for the example that he gives to us from a teenage boy all the way to almost 90 years of age. So much to learn from him. And I ask now that you would um, uh, bless our time together. May your Holy Spirit have his will and way in every heart here. We know your word will not return unto you void, so we will just give you the glory for everything that you accomplished this morning. For we do pray in the blessed name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last week we covered an entire half of a verse. And boy, did I hear a lot about that. <laughs> we covered verse 8a of chapter 1 as we discussed Daniel's purposed resolution. Now today, and I know you are not going to believe this, there is going to be a miracle happening in this room today. We are going to finish chapter 1. Wow! <laughs> We're going to cover, Lord willing, I, I managed to do it yesterday, so I have a pretty good hope of doing this. We're going to cover verses 8b all the way to 21. That's the end of the chapter. And we are going to see how it was that Daniel proceeded outwardly to accomplish what he had determined to do inwardly. In other words, we're going to see how he externally um, accomplished what he had determined to do spiritually. In this lesson, which is entitled A Healthy Pulse, okay, and that's a play on words, if you look at verse 12, A Healthy Pulse, we're going to look at the boots part of Daniel's purposed heart conviction. Remember I gave you a little definition for conviction last week. I said conviction is belief with boots on, ready to march, ready to fight, and even ready to die. So this is the boots part of his conviction. First of all, in verses 8 to 13, we're going to talk about Daniel's two very polite requests that he makes. The first one is to Ashpenaz, the prince of the eunuchs. The second one is to Melzar, who was a steward or a warrant officer kind of a person underneath Ashpenaz. And then in verses 14 to 16, we're going to talk about Daniel's 10-day pulse replacement diet proposal. That's a mouthful. <laughs> His pulse replacement diet proposal, which is, now this is some diet. This diet is guaranteed, look at verse 15. It is guaranteed to make you fairer and fatter in flesh in just 10 days. Not exactly the kind of diet we're all looking for, is it? <laughs> well, then in verses 17 to 21, we're going to close this lesson and this chapter with a quick look at Daniel's divine deliverance from his diet dilemma. Now, you know I like to play with letters. And there I had some fun. Daniel's divine deliverance from his diet dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> Try to say that three times in a row. You know, the crowning day of Daniel's walk with the Most High God, El Elyon, really came on that day that he did purpose in his heart not to defile himself with the king's food and the king's wine because to have done so would have been a violation of God's word. In more than one area, throw out some areas, how would eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine have defiled him against God's law? One thing. Right, the blood, because they were not allowed to consume blood, period. Whether it was in the food, the meat had to be completely drained of blood, or if it was mixed in wine, which is what the Babylonians tended to do, mix wine with blood, gross, right? Gross, really gross. What else? Idols, yes. A lot of the food, especially at the king's table, would have previously been dedicated to or offered to idols false gods and goddesses, and they were only the Jews, were only to honor God, so they couldn't do that. What is another one? There was a whole list in the book of Leviticus of what kind of foods? Clean, 
unclean. All right, a lot of the foods that would have been served on the king's table would have been unclean meats that were prohibited for, from the Jew, for the Jews to eat. So Daniel was very decisive. He would not break, he wouldn't even compromise God's law. Decisiveness. Decisiveness involves making a commitment in the present so as not to fail in the future. Daniel decisively chose to obey God at all costs, even if it meant his life. And he did so under some of the most difficult circumstances that we can be even begin to imagine, especially for a young Jewish teenager. Just think of his age. His circumstances were, were, were terrible living under a king like Nebuchadnezzar who would chop up people in little pieces just, you know, at a whim. From the human standpoint, Daniel's decision looked like there would be no way that he could win. He would be fighting what was, from the world's perspective, a losing battle because he was truly a David standing small and alone against a fierce and powerful Goliath. Was he not? A David against a Goliath. So from the world's perspective, you say, this is just impossible. How can a little teenage boy go up against the king who commanded that they eat this food? But here's the key. Here's the key. The Lord was on Daniel's side, was he not? Because Daniel purposed in his heart to obey God's word at all costs. So when the Lord is on your side, that's all we need to be on the right side, to be on the Lord's side. Well, let's look at his two polite requests, and we'll begin with Daniel's request to Ashpenaz. So look with me at verses 8 to 10. Now, remember last week when we looked at his purposed resolution, we read the first part of 8 where it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And here we begin today's lesson. Therefore... He requested of the prince of the eunuchs, and we know that man's name is Ashpenaz because it was given to us earlier in this chapter. So he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now look at verse 9. Now God, remember this book is all about the sovereignty of God? Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs, this man Ashpenaz. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king. And I'm sure that was an understatement. <laughs> I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king? All right, we saw Daniel's resolve uh, to be obedient to God's law despite the many excuses that he could have used. We talked about a lot of those potential excuses that he could have used and probably most of the other Jewish boys did use in order to justify disobedience to the difficult situation that they were in regarding eating the food at Nebuchadnezzar's table. There will be, and I'm sure for many of us, there have already been times in our lives when we face circumstances that come head to head with our Christian convictions. Have you ever encountered, you know, the Bible says to do this, and then we come in the world or someone uh, in authority over us tells us, no, you have to do this. Have you encountered that? Well, if you haven't yet, I can't imagine you haven't living in this world, but I think we're going to encounter these kind of things, these circumstances more frequently as time goes on because this world is getting increasingly anti-Christian, isn't it? And our, even our government is trying to get us to, to be forced to do certain things that go against our convictions that are based on God's word. So we need to have it settled in our hearts, you know, resolved in our hearts, purposed in our hearts, Ahead of time, before the tests come, we need to resolve what we will do if a certain circumstance hits us like that. And it could come from nowhere, just all of a sudden. So we need to do what Daniel did. He determined that under no circumstances or no self-justification, no rationalization, no excuse that he could provide for himself would he defile himself with the king's provision that violated God's word. 
purpose that in your heart. Under no circumstance whatsoever would I ever do this because I know this is in violation of God's law. And I'm not going to say the this. You can imagine what the thises are. There's a lot of them. Um, so we need to purpose in our hearts ahead of time. He's an example to us for that. However, at the same time that Daniel was resolved to stick to his conviction, no matter what, he also didn't want to needlessly throw his life away, nor the lives of the three that came with him on this, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. We are to do what is right in the sight of God. Always, always, always we are to do what is right in the sight of God, even if it means that those around us in this world, those even in our own families, don't understand mimic us, criticize us, scorn us, even maybe hate us, maybe even get to the point of being violent against us, or if government gets to the point where they throw us in prison, we're always to do what is right in God's sight. But we are not to deliberately try to provoke that kind of response from people and the world. And there are Christians who I'm ashamed to even say that they're Christians who have really provoked this society, you know, done some really dumb things that I don't think Jesus would do at all if he was here. What would Jesus do? But so, but, so you can provoke hatred and animosity. But Daniel, Daniel had a plan to save his life, to try to save his life, while at the same time also gain permission to abstain from the food that was served at the king's table. His plan really shows us what a mature young boy he was. It really shows us that he was a masterful young man of diplomacy. He would make a good diplomat. Oh, yeah, he did make a good diplomat. <laughs> In fact, during two world empires, he was the chief di diplomat, the prime minister of two empires. Amazing. And it all started at a young age. There is so much wisdom in both his plan and his method of carrying out his plan that we can assume, and this assumption is based on what we find out later on as we go through the book of Revelation, uh, Daniel, <laughs> we, we can assume that he saturated his decision in prayer and that he relied on the Lord every step of the way that he took. He would maintain, it was important to him, to maintain his integrity, not only before his God, but also before his fellow man. And he would do this by appealing to those in authority over him with a very reasonable and a wise alternative to his diet dilemma. First of all, we note that Daniel followed the right protocol by going to Ashpenaz. He was the man that the king himself had placed in authority over the Jewish captives. Uh, I don't know if it was just the Jewish captives or, or all the captives of different nations that Babylonia had conquered, but Ashpenaz, we know, was definitely the one in authority over the Jewish captives. It was definitely very wise for Daniel to not try to publicly oppose the king's command. You know, it's a good thing that Daniel didn't go out, get himself a soapbox, stand on it, gather around him all the other university students from the Babylonian Brainwashing Academy, and get a megaphone in his hand and proclaim that he would not defy his holy God by partaking of the king's unholy food. Can you imagine him doing that? Guess what? If Daniel had done that, we wouldn't be talking about Daniel today. <laughs> that would have been the end of Daniel. You know, that would be provoking, needlessly provoking the king's wrath. What did he do instead? Well, he discreetly took his request to Ashpenaz. I believe Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were with him in the room, but they went into a private place, and we'll find out why I say that. And uh, in private quarters... Daniel, who is the spokesman and the leader of all this, he didn't dis demonstrate before Ashpenaz religious pride. Like, you know, we Jews are so much superior to you Gentiles. He had no religious pride. He didn't display self-righteous indignation or display a judgmental attitude 
toward Ashpenaz in making his request. He didn't say, for example, there is no way that I'm going to eat the despicable foods that you vile heathens eat. How dare you drink blood, you know? He didn't come with that kind of, prov you know, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be too smart, would it? That's not the right approach. He was kind, he was polite, he was reasonable, and it took a great deal of boldness for him to do that because he was merely a captive Jewish youth in the midst of a mighty and a very vicious society. These people were vicious. When they conquered other nations, we talked about some of the horrors that they did. But Daniel was bold. He was also very straightforward. He didn't hem and haw. He came right out and explained that his request for permission not to eat the king's food was because he desired to be obedient to his God, who had strictly forbidden certain foods. Notice at the end of verse 8, he says he did not want to defile himself. We don't have the whole conversation that he had with Ashpenaz, but we can imagine that he took the time to explain to him, our God has given us a book, and in that book he tells us what kind of foods we can eat and what kind we cannot eat, and under no circumstances are we ever allowed to, to drink blood. And he, you know, he... He told him the reason why. He was very honest about it, straightforward. He could have used an excuse, a made-up excuse. He could have told Ashpenaz that he had IBS. <laughs> you know what that is? Irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> or some such other excuse. My mama said, I can't ever do such a but he didn't do that because that wouldn't have been true. He would not lie in order to obey God. The ends do not justify the means. Or the means do not, I'm sorry, I said that the other way. The, the means do not justify the end. It's never right to lie in order to obey God, right? That's just a given. He, he was boldly not, to, not ashamed to admit the truth of his commitment to his God. And Ashpenaz would have noted the sincerity of Daniel's loyalty to his God. Can the world out there, can they see the good qualities in Christians? Can they? Yes, I remember when I witnessed to my father, finally got the opportunity to witness to my father, and after three hours of telling him everything I'd ever wanted to tell him about the Bible and about the Lord Jesus Christ, he looked at my mom and he said, wow, she really believes this. She's really sincere. Now, he didn't believe anything I said, but he knew I was sincere. Can the world look at us and say, you know what? She's got integrity. You can really trust her word. If she says she'll do it, she'll do it. They, can, they know the good qualities. They also know that they can see the negative, can't they? Well, Ashpenaz, he could see these good qualities in this young man. And he could appreciate the bold integrity and the unusual commitment and the kind-hearted attitude of young Daniel. It's too bad. It really is too bad that more Christians today, and I say especially in the United States, that we are, there are not more of us who are unashamedly bold to admit the truth of our commitment to God's word. I think, personally, I'm going to get a little political, but I think that's why Ben Carson right now is doing so well. He is unashamedly bold to proclaim his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And people see his integrity, don't they? And even if they don't agree with him, they say, well, he is an honest man. He's got integrity. So the world can see those positive um, qualities in the Christian. But there's too many of us in this world, in this country especially, that <clears throat> don't have that unashamed boldness. And I think that is because so many of us are not fully committed. That's very sad. The other problem is that far too often the fear of man brings what? A snare. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of others' opinions traps us so that too many of us become like an Arctic river frozen over at the mouth. Our lips just get frozen. Oh, I better not say that because somebody, they might not think highly of me. They'll think lower of me. They'll think I'm just one of those, you know... Fundamental Christian, born again, 
wackos or whatever we think. <laughs> but here's the truth, and I hope I always say the truth. I said this yesterday. You know, when somebody says, let me be honest with you, the first thing that comes into my mind is, well, haven't you been? <laughs> so I hope everything I say is the truth, but here is the truth. There should not be a Christian in the world who allows anyone, I don't care who it is, king or whatever, we should never allow anyone to intimidate us from the proclamation of our message, the gospel message, because it is the best, greatest message anyone in this world can ever hear. Even if they don't accept it, let's not be intimidated not to proclaim it. Men, women, young people need to hear the gospel message. That's the only way they can be saved. Jeremiah said, be valiant for the truth. We're warriors, aren't we? Put on your armor. Get out there. Tell people how to be saved. It's also too bad that more people, and here I say especially young people nowadays, that they don't understand that a defiant attitude often backfires. So many of this next generation coming up has a defiant attitude toward those in authority, don't they? Um, but that, doesn't, that just oftentimes it backfires on them. To gain the cooperation and the support and perhaps even the respect of your superiors, whether they're teachers, parents, um, government authority, policemen, whoever it is, really a spirit of humility goes a long way. This, this country, our people need a whole lot, a bigger dose of humility, don't we? All, you know, instead of being defiant and claiming our rights like Daniel could have done. You know, I'm a Jew. I have rights. I can't eat this. He was humble about his approach. The believer should learn from Daniel, not just the younger generation, but the older generation too. On hearing Daniel's request, Ashpenaz certainly had the authority to take Daniel and haul him straight to the king. He could have taken him to the king and said, you know, reported his ungrateful rebellion. How dare this young Jewish uh, captive stand up to us and say, or even ask me to not eat your food, king. You've been so gracious to spread this table before them, and he's saying he can't do it because it'll defile him. Couldn't Ashpenaz have done that? Couldn't he say, this kid is ungrateful. Uh, he's impertinent for just a slave boy. But Daniel didn't act ungrateful. That, you see nothing of that in here. I am sure, in fact, that Daniel, learning more about him as I go through the pages of the book, that he probably started out being very grateful. He probably said to Ashpenaz, um, this, is, this is very generous of the king. You know, we're captives. We could, have just, we could be in a dungeon having bread and water. But he's been so generous to put before us all the foods that he eats. This is really nice. But I have, a pro I have a little bit of a dilemma, and let me explain to you why. Don't you think that's the way Daniel probably handled it? And I don't think he went about this at all in a rebellious manner. I don't see any of that in the conversation. Well, besides the fact of Daniel's wise approach to his authority figure, Ashpenaz, there's also the additional information that we are given in verse 9. Remember, Daniel's all about the sovereignty of God. We find in Daniel 9, verse, chapter 1, verse 9, that the sovereign God, the Lord of the universe, had already gone ahead of Daniel in this whole situation. He had plowed up the ground of the heart of Ashpenaz so that this man had compassion toward Daniel. You see, God was watching over Daniel, wasn't he? Just as he's watching over every one of us in this room. He had already used the godly spirit and the integrity of this young teenager to win the respect of the prince of the eunuchs. They've been together for some time. And the prince has been watching all these young boys. And some, something that he saw in Daniel just made his heart reach out to him. I don't know what it could have been. I was thinking about how the Lord died on the cross and he didn't even cry out. And he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Daniel, when he was being castrated, I mean, they didn't have anesthesia. I don't know how they did that. But maybe there was something about him that just shined above all the other boys. I don't know. But he had won the affection of this man who was over him. In fact, 
He had more than respect for Daniel. He had favor and tender love for him, it tells us. Now, in Hebrew, the word for favor means kindness. He was likely an older man. I don't mean old, old, but probably, uh, well, he wasn't a teenager. Maybe Ashpenaz was probably also a captive, you know, because he was made a eunuch, too. He's the prince of the eunuchs. Um, maybe he was in his 30s, 40s, 50s, I'm guessing. And he felt genuine kindness toward Daniel. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated tender love is one word in Hebrew. It's racham. And it's interesting. You know what it means? Racham speaks of the tender love that a mother has for the baby still in her womb. Wow. The use of that particular word tells us, really, sheds a lot of light on the work of God that had gone before in this man's heart. He felt like a parent to Daniel. Now the king, the king's provisions were nothing. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, this, of the earth at that time, we could say, his provisions of that great spread of food were nothing compared to the king of kings' provisions. God had actually provided a man in authority over Daniel who actually felt fatherly love for him. You know, it's one thing to have great food, but to have in place when you're a prisoner, a man who feels like your surrogate father, isn't that fantastic? How the Lord provided for Daniel? Man, that really shows his sovereign work, doesn't it? It's a miraculous work of God's grace, how he can bring us, his people, into favor with people we never knew before. Have you ever had that happen? Maybe you're stranded somewhere. Maybe you're in trouble. I don't know. Somebody comes along and they just show favor towards you. It can even be someone, you know, completely different background, completely different culture, even those who might have been um, hostile toward us. He did this with Joseph, didn't he? Remember what it says in Genesis that, uh, I think it's, I can't remember the chapter, 39 or something like that. He gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. He did this with Esther when King Ahasuerus held out his scepter to her. He did this with the Israelites. He gave favor to the Egyptian people for the Israelites. And, and get this, it was after those ten horrible plagues on the Egyptians. Even after all that had happened, that them losing their firstborns, yet God, this is in Exodus 12, 36, the Lord God gave favor from the Egyptians to the Israelites, and they wound up giving them lots of silver and gold and supplies for their journey out of Egypt. Amazing. But who's got the hearts of, of men and women and young people in his hand? The Lord has the hearts of all of us in his hand. Well, one word we could pin on Daniel is that he was uncompromising. Here's an irony about compromise. Usually, we will compromise. You know, we'll try to come to a middle ground with what we know the Bible says and what the world is saying, and we'll try to find that middle ground. That's compromise instead of being all out for God. And usually we do that because we're <clears throat> afraid. For example, when Abraham told Sarah to lie about not being his wife and telling the Egyptians that she was his sister. That was a half-truth because she was his half-sister. But he said, don't tell him you're my wife. Tell him you're my sister. He was, he was afraid, so he compromised. But usually when we do that, when we compromise because we're afraid, that compromise is usually what gets us in trouble. That's exactly what happened with Abraham. Oh, she's your sister? Well, then we can take her. She's not your wife, and we'll take her, and they put her in the Pharaoh's harem. Not too smart. Here's the truth. If we don't compromise, God himself will be our protector. He will stand before us and protect us in the midst of our trouble, in, our, in the midst of our dilemma. But as soon as we compromise his standards, what, what do we do? We take away that umbrella of his protection. <laughs> so it, that's an irony, isn't it? But that's how it works. Daniel teaches us some basic principles on how to proceed in a situation where we find ourselves um, between two competing directives. 
One from God, one from man. You know, God says do this, man says do that. Remember Peter and the others as they stood before the Sanhedrin council? Don't ever preach again in the name of Jesus. So, you know, the, the government, those in authority over them were telling them to do one thing, but they said, well, we must obey God. So here's what Daniel tells us to do. He, he shows, he gives us a whole lot of, I have these numbered in your notes. I won't bother numbering them now. I'm just going to go through them. First of all, he showed respect for the proper chain of command, which is what Peter and the others did too. And Stephen, they were all respectful, weren't they? Daniel did that. He went to his immediate supervisor. Now, notice he didn't go over Ashpenaz's head to the king. He didn't go directly to the king. That probably wouldn't have gotten him very far. But he went to the right one. He went to Ashpenaz. And he didn't go first to Melzar, as we'll see he does. Melzar was the one under Ashpenaz. So he didn't go too far up, and he didn't go too far down. He went right to the right man. And I'm sure Daniel also already knew that Ashpenaz had a little bit of a tender spot in his heart for him. So he was the right one to go to. Also, when he went to Ashpenaz, he didn't go with a demand, did he? He didn't say, I demand my rights. He went with a request. That's a big difference. He was very wisely tactful in his approach. Furthermore, he didn't go before Ashpenaz with a show of humility and um, a great display of kindness so that he could get what he was asking for. He had been consistent before he even went to Ashpenaz in his humility and in his kindness. A lot of people will just put on a show when they want to get something. For example, let's say you want to raise at work, and so you go before your boss and you act really kind and wonderful, you know? But if you haven't been acting that way all along, he might say, no way, Jose. <laughs> So um, he was consistent. He obviously displayed a great spirit and an attitude prior to this, a right attitude, because he was already held in high esteem by the prince of the eunuchs. However, as much as Ashpenaz felt an affection for Daniel, even a fatherly affection, he feared the king more. His fear of the king was more than his love for Daniel. And that's exactly how he began his response to Daniel. He said, I fear my Lord, the king. To feed the captives anything else other than what the king had commanded they be fed would be in direct violation to the king's command. And that would be dangerous for Ashpenaz, wouldn't it? it sa he says to Daniel, he says, when the king sees your faces, now do you notice that word faces, plural, in verse 10? That is how we know that Daniel wasn't standing there alone. Somebody else had joined him in this purposed heart conviction not to defile themselves. And who are they? We learn later on in this chapter, the three Hebrews, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. He says, when the king sees your faces looking worse, or liking worse, whatever it says there in the King James, which means looking less healthy, thinner, more drawn. You know, when he sees you looking not as healthy as the other children of your sort, that refers to the other Jewish captives, he says, then my head's going to be in danger. And he's speaking literally here, isn't he? It's going to be my head if, if the king sees that. Now, when Ashpenaz expressed his legitimate fear, what did Daniel wisely do? He let it go. That's that Frozen song. Let it go. My granddaughters are always saying that. Um, he didn't press the point. He did not try to argue with his superior, nor did he try to debate with him about this matter. He had made his request, and when it was denied, he held his tongue. That's, that was very good. That was wise. However, from the way that Ashpenaz had explained the situation to Daniel, rather than just flat out denying his request, what could Ashpenaz have done? He could have said, no way. How can you even ask this of me? Don't you know it would cost me my life? Get out of here. But rather than doing something like that, he went to the trouble to explain why he was denying his request. And so that told Daniel 
that there was room for a counter-proposal. And this is where we notice Daniel's persistence because he could have given up his purposed heart conviction at this point and said to himself, well, at least I tried. I gave it my best shot. I mean, I did more than the rest of the guys who, who, have, who didn't even try to obey God. And so I'm sure God will understand when I now have to eat the king's meat and drink his wine. However, true commitment, true, true, heartfelt, deep, purposed commitment to God's standards of righteousness doesn't quit when one door is shut, doesn't compromise. When one door is closed, Daniel looked for another one. He looked for another door. He wasn't slowed down one single bit by that first refusal. He trusted that his desire to obey God's word would result in God opening another door for him. And that's exactly what happened. Now, Daniel, when he went back to his room, or wherever he was staying, um, I'm sure that he meditated on the response that he had gotten to his proposal. He thought about what Ashpenaz had said. And he realized that the whole reason for the refusal hinged on Ashpenaz's fear that the four boys would look worse than the rest of the crowd. And when the king noticed that, uh, that difference and realized, found out that Ashpenaz had allowed those four boys to eat something other than his provision, then it would cost Ashpenaz his life. So Daniel would realize, ah, here's a possible solution. If I and, and my three friends, if we can maintain a healthy appearance without the king's food and without the king's wine, then our problem will be resolved. And so with the Lord's leading, he devised a way to circumvent that single objection. That was it. That was the objection. I fear for my life because you'll look sicker. But rather than returning to Ashpenaz to put the man on the spot even further and perhaps even to provoke him from anger, what did Daniel do? And again, this was so wise. Instead of going back to Ashpenaz, he went to the man right under Ashpenaz, Melzar, the steward. Now, Melzar probably was not his proper name. Melzar means war, um, warden. So he was the steward, he was the warden over these Jewish boys directly. He was probably the one who actually put the food on their table, directly responsible for their food and drink. So let's look at Daniel's request to Melzar, verses 11 to 13. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Here's what Daniel said, asked him. He said, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, Melzar, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So, having been refused permission from Ashpenaz for a permanent change of diet, Daniel's proposed plan now to Melzar was only a temporary diet plan, a 10-day diet test. This brief trial would be between him and his three friends who would eat nothing but what? Pulse and water. I'll talk in a minute about what pulse is. And then the rest of the Hebrew captives. This was like a scientific experiment. These four will just eat pulse and water. This crowd over here, they'll eat everything that's on the king's table, all right? And the time period was only for 10 days, 10 days. That was perfect. That was actually perfect. If Daniel and his friends looked thinner and less healthy, then their condition could be very quickly remedied in just a matter of a day or so. You know, just pump them with a lot of the king's desserts or something, and pretty soon they'll look fat again. Um, and so the Babylonian steward's life would not be in danger. Probably the king wouldn't even see them for those 10 days. They didn't run across the king every day that they were in the, in the Babylonian academy. 
The proposal was that all the Hebrews would then appear before Melzar on the 10th day. And he, would, he himself would compare the two groups of boys and base his decision on what to do on what he saw. What he saw in their faces and what he saw in their faces and their bodies and their bodies, okay? So if Daniel and his friends were just as healthy looking as the rest of the boys, then the implied request was that they would be allowed to continue their poor man's diet for the rest of their time in the academy and in the palace, actually. It was really wise. It was a fair proposal because it was short and simple. And where did the decision for the test results lie? With Melzar. He was giving Melzar, he was allowing Melzar to be the judge of this contest, this experiment. Why do you think Daniel trusted Melzar to be the judge? Why? Because ultimately, who did he know was really the judge? his judge. What does Daniel's name mean? God is my judge. He was really trusting God in all of this. Pulse is the Hebrew word zara, Z-A-R-A, and it means to sow, you know, not with a needle and thread, but to sow like to scatter seed. It's a word that referred to things, to foods that were sown, such as veggies, vegetables, beans, um, fruits, um, Herbs and grains, so like wheat and barley, so they could eat vegetables, fruits, um, and bread. All right, and of course water <laughs> is water. So this was the food of the poor, is what they called it. Daniel was so confident in his conviction, which was based on the word of God. That's where his conviction came, it was based on God's word. He was so confident that his convictions about all of this were the right ones, that he was actually anxious for his convictions to be proven to everyone. He wanted his convictions to be tested <clears throat> by the 10-day food test so that others would already know what, uh, would know what he already knew, which is that God's ways are the best ways. So he was very, very anxious for this test because he was so confident you know, that should be our, our way too. We should not be hesitant to put our faith to the test. Our faith can stand the tests of time and eternity and all the tests that the world wants to throw at it. It's falsehoods, false doctrines that can't pass the tests. So we have, we have absolutely nothing to fear about any test whatsoever. Daniel was so confident in his God that he said, prove, prove thy servants. And then he said, I beseech thee. What does that display? Fervency, I beg of you, I beseech you, prove us, confidence, I beseech you, fervency, and then faith. Just 10 days. That's a step of faith, right? That they're going to look that much different after just 10 days? That really is a step of faith. So let's look now at the pulse replacement, Daniel 1, 14 to 16. So he consented to them, that's Melzar. He consented to them. That tells us again that Daniel's there with his three friends in this matter and proved them <clears throat> ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus, Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. Melzar agreed to this proposed contest with these two diets. One diet, king's food and wine, was fed to all the other Jewish captives who did not join Daniel in his conviction to obey God at all costs. The other diet, pulse and water, was just given to the four. If you take a firm stand on God's word, on God's standards and his principles and his precepts, if you take a firm stand, you can be assured of one thing. Here it is. God will test you. He will test your resolve. He will test that conviction. He will test your faith. He will examine your claims. You know, it's easy to say, well, I would never do that because God's word says I shouldn't do that. It's one thing to make a claim, right? <coughs> it's another thing to, obey, to stick with it. So he will examine our claims so that we discover where we really are in our commitment. 
All commitment sooner or later is tested. Why? Well, because tested faith produces steadfastness. And tested faith produces deeper faith. It produces patience. It produces endurance. And what else does James tell us? The first chapter of James. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials and tests because ultimately they are what produces spiritual maturity. And don't we all want to be mature in our faith? So testing is good. After three days of nothing but pulse and water, the boys may have not endured. They may have quit. They may have said, oh, you know, this is not too much fun. Or, or they all lasted three days. What about five days? Or seven days? Seven days. At least one of them, don't you think one of them might have said, well, this is really boring, this pulse and water. Look at those other guys enjoying them so much with all that food. It isn't worth it. But not one of the four quit, did they? They all passed the test. They went the full 10 days um, and proved that they were committed to living according to God's principles. And God honored their uncompromising spirits. At the end of the 10-day trial, all of the Hebrew captives appeared before <clears throat> Melzar for his examination. And what he found probably shocked him a lot. It probably really surprised Melzar. But it didn't surprise Daniel. I don't think it surprised him one single bit. What he found was that Daniel and his friends were fairer and fatter in flesh than their Jewish brethren who had eaten all the king's rich food. Now, personally, I would have not been that pleased with that assessment by the doctor after being on a 10-day diet of veggies and fruit and water. If I went to the doctor and he says, Aha, Catherine, you look fairer and fatter in flesh. <laughs> That would not be good news to hear. But this was good news for these young men. That was a compliment to them. They looked better. They felt better than the other young men. Well, of course they did. Of course they did. Nobody who eats a steady diet of exotic foods, red meat, uh, rich desserts, and alcohol is going to feel better than those who eat grains, veggies, fruits, and water. Right? We know that. That's a given. So, of course, they felt better and looked better. But the amazing thing is that they were fatter. <laughs> that is truly the amazing thing, is that they were fatter in flesh. Because you don't really get fatter in flesh on a vegetarian diet. Bible commentators are divided on this subject. You know? Um, but it definitely seems, to me at least... Now, you can have a different opinion on this. Uh, but it seems to me like there was an intervention of God in all of this. That in just 10 days, these boys were fatter than the others. Um, healthier looking, you know, fatter. I guess, I don't know, somebody said yesterday maybe they'd been working out for 10 days. <laughs> yeah, I know, but the King James, I'm using the King James. But they were buff, yeah. Um, now, normally you wouldn't really even think you'd notice that much of a change in 10 days unless you're on some kind of a starvation diet or unless you're in um, severe uh, training of some kind. Like my son, years ago when he was going into special forces, um, he had to go through what's called Sears training, severe survival training in the high desert country of California where there's mountains. And, and they sent them out there with nothing except a you know, little backpack but no food canteen of water but um, they had to survive on their own and he got so hungry he was eating grasshoppers, rabbit eyes uh, boy would I have to be hungry <laughs> um, and he was being chased around by the enemy forces you know all this it was, it was very awful and when he came out, out of that he was only in it for six days he lost 20 pounds and my son is not big I mean, he's tall and thin, but to lose 20 pounds, he sent me a picture, and I thought it looked like he had been in a prisoner of war camp. It was horrible. But normally after 10 days, you don't notice a huge difference um, in people. But to look visibly fatter of flesh eating a bread, vegetable, water diet, 
is, to me, I think it's, uh, it sounds like God's intervention here. I think he was honoring their obedience, vindicating Daniel's conviction, and also glorifying his own word. I think God here really made them look visibly different from the other boys because he wanted to vindicate his own word, Daniel's, you know, conviction, etc. All right, now let's look lastly at his deliverance, verses 17 to 21. Um, where it says, as for these four children, God, here we go again with God's sovereignty, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Okay, I'm going to just break for 30 seconds here to tell you a funny story. 29 years ago, when I first began the ladies' Bible study and had about 12, 15 women sitting in front of me over there at Grace Chapel Church, and I read that particular verse right there that I just read to you. I was reading from a different version of the Bible. And I was so young and dumb that I had not actually re read that passage before I came before the ladies. <laughs> I learned my lesson in a hurry. I always read the passage first so I know how to pronounce all the words. And in that particular version of the Bible, it said that God had given Daniel the gift of interpreting enigmas. Now, when I read it, I said, God gave Daniel the gift of interpreting enemas. <laughs> and as soon as that word came out of my mouth, and, and I, was, I, was the, I was young, and they were all older than me. I, I, I don't know why I was the teacher. And I, I looked up at them, and they were all looking at me. And that was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Now, I've had many embarrassing, but can you imagine a gift of being able to interpret enemas? <laughs> no, thank you, God. I don't want that one. <laughs> oh, me. All right, now, verse 18. Now, at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's going to give them their final exam. Three years in the Babylonian brainwashing academy are over. Can you believe how fast those three years went? All right, this is their graduation exam, their final exam, and King Nebuchadnezzar is the examiner. Verse 19, and the king communed with them. Now they could speak his language, right? Three years of studying Chaldean. He communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. You know what that means? They got the privileged positions of standing in the presence of the king as his counselors. Verse 20, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. That's amazing. And then this footnote, and Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus, who was the first king of the next empire, the empire that conquered the Babylonian empire, the Medo-Persian empire. Well, did you notice how this last section of the first chapter began? There, remember chapter one, we've divided into three sections. His deportation, his devotion, and his deliverance. Well, <clears throat> this last section begins by telling us, verse 17, that it was God, sovereign God, who gave the four youths their knowledge, their skills in learning and in wisdom, and it was God who gave Daniel a special gift of understanding visions and dreams. Where is the emphasis? It's on the sovereignty of God, just as it was in the first section on the deportation. Remember verse 2? Look at it. We learned that the deportation of those 60 Jewish youths of royalty and nobility um, who were taken to Babylon was the result of the Lord giving King Jehoiakim of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And then the emphasis is also on God's sovereignty in the second section of this chapter, which we just read in verse 9, where it says, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuch. So you see here, Daniel is rightfully giving God, sovereign God, credit for everything, isn't he? For everything. 
his whole personal history, he's giving God the, the glory, the credit. He, he gave full, humbly gave God full credit also for his knowledge and his skill in learning and in wisdom that he and the other three Hebrew youths acquired during their three-year-long training in the Babylonian palace. Most people will brag about their accomplishments and what they have achieved. You know, it is very rare that a man or a woman or a young person will rightfully give the credit to the Lord. You know, we see this every now and then. You see this in sports, don't you? Where someone will give the glory to the one who deserves, the one who gave that athlete his body. Same thing in academic word, world. You know, the ability that any of us have to learn anything is only because God gave us our minds, right? He gives us our next breath. Without him, we can do nothing. These boys were quick, and they were keen to learn and to master their studies, but it was only because the, the, the Lord had blessed them with good minds, clear heads, healthy bodies. He also gave them their wisdom. There are far too many people in this world who have heads full of knowledge, so much knowledge that I just don't know why some of them just don't burst. <laughs> but they, they don't have wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply that knowledge. You know, so many are ever learning, and they never came, come to the knowledge of the truth. But Daniel and his friends were not like that. They were as practical in their application of what they had learned as they were in their ability to learn. But all of it was because of God. And Daniel was given that special extra divine endowment. He was the leader of the convicted heart proposition, right? So he was given the gift of being able to interpret visions and dreams that came from God. And we're going to see the proof of that gift throughout the rest of the book, starting when we come back in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Well, it was time for the final exam. Three years had passed. All the students of the whole academy were brought before the king. Now, wouldn't that be nerve-wracking? Brought before the king. You know, it's one thing to have a final exam, but to have it before a king who can just fly off the handle at a whim? What if you gave the wrong answer and he says, take him to the fiery furnace? Chop them up into little pieces. That would be pretty nerve-wracking. And these were oral exams. Now, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, was very qualified to be the examiner. He had been raised in a royal home. His father had been the king. He, he had gotten the best education that the world had to provide at that time. So he was capable of being the examiner. And it says that he gave a thorough examination that covered all matters of wisdom and understanding. Um, and the result. What was the result of the final exam? It was that the king found none of the other students that excelled like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. The four who had stood strong in their obedience to God's word became the four who stood at the top of their class. Now, do you think that that was just coincidence? Not at all. God, God's hand was at work here. These four were promoted to service in the court of the king where they stood before the king. Did they have an influence over the Babylonian empire? Yes, because these four had the ear of the king. They had great influence. We'll find that out, especially with Daniel. They had so much influence that eventually Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. That just always amazes me. Um, Daniel's bold and his righteous stand against God's compromising holy standards was rewarded in three ways. First of all, God preserved his life, didn't he? He preserved his life. Even though he didn't compromise, he could have been killed, but God preserved his life. He then exalted him in the Babylonian kingdom. And third, God progressively revealed more of himself to Daniel and more of his overall program for history. Not only the Gentile nation's history, but the history of his beloved Israel. That's going to be progressively given to Daniel. So you see how he was rewarded? For his purposed heart, amazing. Now, something that, and I'm almost done, something that is more even more interesting to read is that not only were these four Hebrews uh, at the top of their graduating class, but verse 20 tells us that the king found them 10, isn't that an interesting number? We've just read the number 10 in the same chapter. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers in all of his realm. You know what that means? He found these four young boys who aren't even probably quite yet 20, 
years of age, he found them smarter in every subject, 10 times smarter and better than all of his magicians and astrologers. Those speaks of the Chaldean wise men, the magi, not only there in the palace, but in all of his realm. Now we get the idea that Nebuchadnezzar was not easily impressed. But wow, this, this shows he was super impressed with these young men. That he, he found in them no equivalence in his entire kingdom. And that is a significant compliment. Ten times better. Now, a lot of the commentaries will say that that is what is called a hyperbole, that that is an exaggeration or it's just an expression. But I don't think it is. I think that the Lord gave them one degree extra intelligence for every day of their diet test. I don't think it's coincidence that he puts 10 in here, 10, 10, you know. Actually, the believer in, and here's what I got to thinking, it's not an exaggeration at all. It's not even enough. Because the believer in God and the believer in God's word is really infinitely more better, that's, I should say better, than anyone who is engaged in occultic practices. Isn't that always ten times better than magicians? Those are people that diviners, you know, speak to the spirit world and read enemas. <laughs> I was going to say tea leaves. <laughs> um, but they're into the occult, the magicians and the astrologers. So anyone who believes in the true God and his word, are we just ten times better? No, we are infinitely better because we know the truth. We're on the right road. We're on the road that leads to eternal life. They're on the road that leads to destruction. So I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. The most outstanding and extraordinary student of the whole class, however, was Daniel. What do you call that? Summa cum luma? <laughs> valedictorian. He was the valedictorian of the class. His success as servant counselor to the king was so great that his career not only outlasted Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but Daniel's career as prime minister outlasted Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nabonidus's reign. It outlasted Nebuchadnezzar's grandson's reign, Belshazzar, you know, the handwriting king. And it even went into King Cyrus's reign. He was the, the king that ruled the Medo-Persian Empire. And and he outlasted Darius. Darius died before Daniel did. Darius was put as king over Babylonia. Cyrus was the emperor of the whole Medo-Persian Empire. I mean, what, what, a, what a testimony. In verse 21, we read that he continued even to the first year of King Cyrus. That isn't the year he died. We know from Daniel 10.1 that he lived. He was still alive during the third year of King Cyrus. Um, so that, when you do all the little calculation, that tells us that Daniel lived to almost be nine, well, we don't know exactly when he died, but he was almost 90 years old. What a, what a long life. Good for him. I mean, he, from a teenager to almost 90 years old, he had a tremendous and long-lasting influence, which continues yet today, doesn't it? As we're examining his life, do you think Daniel ever could have imagined in a million years, now that is an exaggeration, um, that 2,600 years later, there'd be this little church in Tramway, North Carolina, of women that were talking about him. You know, you just do not know that the longevity of the influence that you can leave behind for others. It's just amazing. An individual who lives a pure, uncompromising lifestyle will influence others beyond what he or she ever knew was possible because that's the Lord doing that. We just give him our fish and our few loaves, right? And he takes it and multiplies it. So what is the best advice that Daniel has to give you and I here 2,600 years later? What, is, what would it be his best advice to you and I? <laughs> right, exactly. He would say, do not compromise. Don't ever, ever, ever compromise on the word of God. Take a stand 
purpose in your heart that you will be convicted, you know, committed to do what he says to do at all costs. And God will be your protector. Let the Lord take your life and do with it as he pleases. And he, he would say to you and I, I guarantee you that it will be at least 10 times better than the life of anyone in this world who has not purpose to live for God. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for the truth that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we, Father, never cast away our confidence, which has great recompense of reward one day. For they that wait upon you will renew our strength. We will mount up with wings as eagles. We shall run and not be weary. We shall walk and not faint. That is your promise, and it is true. We love you, Lord Jesus. Be with every one of us for the next two weeks and help us never, ever to be ashamed to proclaim the greatest message anyone can ever hear, salvation in your son. For we do pray in his name. Amen. God bless you.